Grace and peace to you. Abe uh, already, you know, gave me an introduction. I've got a lot to say, so we're just going to get rolling. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter, verses 1, 13 through 27. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you shall call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You may be seated. Pray with me. God of grace, thank you for your word. We pray that this morning you would use it to speak to our hearts, that you would speak through me and give us ears to hear what you might have us know and believe so that our faith can be strengthened through the good news of the gospel. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, when I start talking about holiness, what your first thoughts are, right? It is not always a source of encouragement for us because holiness can seem like a little bit of a burden, right? You know, it makes me think of a story that I heard growing up. And it may shape how we, it may give us some insight into how we view holiness. There's a story I heard growing up of a, a young guy much like myself, grew up out in the mountains. And he, you know, like many young guys out in the country, was into hunting. And he decided after a few years of successful hunting, you know, small game, maybe a deer here and there, that he was ready. He was gonna set out to get his first bear. And so the young man spent the off season, you know, reading, reading the hunting journals, the blogs, talking to older hunters and preparing himself for hunting his first bear. And so the fall season comes, you know, glorious day like today, maybe a little colder, and he sets out into the mountains feeling ready, ready to hunt his first bear. And after a couple of days, he's successful. He gets a beautiful black bear. And then the reality starts to set in. Now he has to drag this bear a couple miles back out of the woods to his truck. And so, you know, still high off of the success of his hunt, he begins the process of hauling this bear out. But as the time wears on, as the miles pile up, he starts to get a little tired. And finally, he's in view of his truck. He's just a couple yards, 100 yards from the road. 
He can see it. He knows he's almost there. And his strength starts to give out. And so in pull and swear and kick as he might, he can't move that bear another inch. It's about this time the young man looks up and sees two old timers standing on the road laughing at him. Old timers often tend to show up when you're in the midst of an embarrassing moment. And in frustration, he just shrugs his shoulders at them and huffs. And one of the old timers speaks up and says, well, son, it looks like you were loaded for bear, but you can't bear the load. I know, I know. It's a, it's a terrible joke. But, but I wonder if sometimes how we view holiness is not similar to this young man's experience. Holiness in our daily reality is something that can feel like an unbearable weight. Like we already feel that we aren't enough, right? That we don't measure up and that God couldn't love us because of our sin. And because of this, holiness, a call to be holy, a command to pursue holiness can feel more than anything like a reminder of our failures and inadequacies. At best, we might feel like we've squeaked by and are tolerated by the Father because of what Jesus has done. And so then to be reminded of our need for holiness just feels like more weight in an already guilty conscience, right? Maybe like this young man, we have some, at some point set out with holiness in mind. We have set out to conquer a bear in our lives, whether it be some sin or a struggle that we experience. And, and with our, our prep and all of our hopes, maybe we even get off a clean shot, only to find that once again, we can't bear the load. And so it kind of seems strange that in this passage, Peter is using a command to be holy as a source of encouragement for these believers. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? This, this idea that we need this thing that seems so unattainable can actually be something that should be an ultimate hope for us. And so there are three ways we're gonna look at in this passage that, holy, that Peter is using the idea of holiness to encourage the believers in this church. We're gonna look at holiness as a covenant identity, holiness as a command, and holiness as an eternal hope. That's your outline. So let's start with the first one. The Apostle Peter is seeking to encourage the believers that he's talking to through the idea of holiness as a covenant identity. Peter is writing to not just one church. He's actually writing this letter for a bunch of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And this is most likely during the reign of the Roman, Roman Emperor Nero. And Peter's actually writing from Rome. He's probably living close to Nero. And this is a terrible time for the church, right? Like, Nero's feeding people to lions. Christians are getting lit up as torches. It's not a good time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. And so he's writing to a group that actually really needs encouragement. They're facing a lot of loss, loss of life, loss of national identity, loss of jobs and wealth and all sorts of difficulty. And so what is Peter trying to reassure them of in the midst of this terrible time? He's trying to give them some assurance of their purpose and identity as followers of Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, his call to holiness, be holy as I am holy, is a quote from Leviticus 11, which we read this morning for our Old Testament reading. This passage, and in fact, all the other passages of Leviticus are not meant to be a laundry list of things God doesn't like, right? Like God's just not mad about shellfish. Instead, the purpose of all of these passages is to point us to the idea, to help us understand that God and his graciousness had, had picked a people for himself. He had called people out of brokenness and made them his own. And then through his law, he's setting them apart as his own holy people. 
He's setting them apart from the rest of the world, which is separate from God. See, holiness is most primarily a relational issue for us. See, God is holy and perfect, and he is set apart from all that is not. And so our natural default is as utterly separated from God because of our lack of holiness. And so this is a problem, right? We were made for relationship with God. God, in his good design for all of creation, made all things perfect, including us. And we were created to exist in loving relationship with the Father, to know him, to worship him, to glorify him. But you know the story. Sin ruins this, right? Through the sin of Adam and Eve, the rejection of God's lordship, the rejection of his goodness, sin enters in and breaks all of this. And so now in our natural state, we're separated from the Father. He is holy and we are not. And we're stuck here. There is no thing that we can do that will reconcile this for us. And what is the hope of our reconciliation then? Is it, as we read through something like a Leviticus, is it just keeping these laws? Is it, okay, if I follow these rules, then I have some kind of hope of, of closing the gap between me and God. Well, thank goodness, that is not what Leviticus is teaching. It's not what Peter's getting at in this passage. In a minute, we'll look at verses 18 and 19, but first, I wanna to talk to you a minute about Leviticus chapter 16. So, you know, you get Leviticus, all these rules, all these laws, and then you get to chapter 16, and in chapter 16, we see that there's this like really intense sacrificial system that the, the people of God had, right? So God has taken this people, he's called them out of slavery and bondage, he has promised to be their God and they will be his people, he has given them his holy law to set them apart from the rest of the world. And in chapter 16, we get to this point of like, also you can't do it, like you can't be holy. You need sacrifices to make you ceremonially clean before God so that he can dwell with you. Right? And so we see this, all this sacrifice in Leviticus 16. It's blood and bulls and goats. And there is all sorts of things that are supposed to make God's people ceremonially clean. But the, the scripture tells us all over the place that, you know, the blood of animals is not going to make you right with God. It is not enough to actually make you holy with the eternal, perfect God of the universe. And so all of these things are just a shadow that point to an ultimate sacrifice. Right? And you've heard this before. You've heard of this guy named Jesus, right? This ultimate sacrifice that will come to rescue us from our sins. And so Peter talks about this in verses 18 and 19 when he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a perfect lamb without blemish or spot. You see, through his death on the cross, Christ shed blood has paid the price for sin. As believers, you've had all of your sins dealt with, right? Again, familiar territory for most of us. This call to holiness then is not based in our moral efforts. It's based in the fact that Christ's shed blood has made us right with God, covering our wickedness with the payment of his precious blood. So what is Peter trying to communicate to these believers who are in the midst of suffering? He's trying to get them to understand, despite all that's going on around them, their ultimate problem that was facing them, the biggest issue in their lives, and ultimately the biggest issue in our lives, has been dealt with. That reconciled relationship to God, the very thing we were created for, has been achieved for us. And so as we start to think about what holiness is, we first need to know it's something that's already been done for us through the work of Christ. And just as God delivered the people of Israel from physical bondage, so we have been delivered from bondage to sin and death. 
And just as God made the Israelites a unique people whose identity was based on their reconciled relationship to him as their creator, so the church has been reconciled to God and is set apart as unique and holy for the sake of his glory. Just as God dwelt with his covenant people in the desert as they waited to enter their promised land, so God dwells with us in the church as we wait to enter our eternal rest. How does this actually work though? What does this look like? What is, what is, what are the, what's the nitty gritty? There's a big idea we need to understand. This big idea that through the blood of Christ, we've been made right with God. But not only that, we've been unified with Christ. We have been joined to him in an inseparable marriage. And we talk about this idea as our union with Christ. And this means a lot of things. We do not have time to go over all of them. But part of what it means, and part of what Peter is getting at in this passage, is that in our union with Christ, we have been given a new identity. A new identity. You know, I grew up in old-timey Baptist churches. You know, old-time religion. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And it was not at all uncommon in those churches to hear somebody say, you know, in their reference to need for Jesus, that they were just a, a dirty, rotten sinner, you know? It's, it's a, they meant well when they said it. They were, they were talking about something important. But man, it would, it would just irritate my dad to no end. And I, I remember how often he would say to me, you're not a sinner. You're a saint with a sin problem. Your identity is no longer as a sinner. Yes, you have sin in your life, but who you are in your union with Christ is a saint. And so... In the midst of a world that's gone crazy over identity, we need to know that we are not sinners. Yes, you have sin in your life, but through the blood of Christ, you've been made righteous before God. Your identity then is as the holy covenant people of God. And you can't identify with your sin anymore, right? Because that is completely contrary to the identity you've been given. You have been made right with Christ by his blood, and you belong to him. You cannot define yourself by the evil desires of your flesh, even though they fight against you, even though you can't get rid of them. To do so would be to deny the power of Christ's blood, the power that it has to save you, and the power that it has to sanctify you. You see, Christ's blood has made you righteous before God, by covering your sin. But it is also at work in you, changing you, sanctifying you, making you less sinful. And because what Christ has done for us, we can boldly fight our sin, looking to grace and being honest and open about our struggles. And this brings us to our second point, the hope in holiness as a command. If Christ has secured our identity as the holy set apart people of God, What then is our responsibility as believers regarding holiness? And this is where we get a little nervous, right? What do we got to do? Well, in this passage, we're called to be sober, not conformed to our former passions. And once brought into the family of God by the blood of Christ, the believer is commanded to put away their sinful practices, setting themselves apart from the sin of the world. You see, holiness is not a requirement for entry into the family of God, but it is an inevitable and necessary outcome. But this doesn't have to be burdensome because ultimately our holiness is not our work. It is the work of Christ in us. It is something that he has promised to do in us. What does that mean though? What does it mean to set yourself apart from the world? 
through our obedience to the truth. Well, first, we need to take a minute to talk about what it doesn't mean, because this is actually a little, little complex, and we've got to be careful. So there's this thing in our culture, evangelical culture and church culture in general, called perfection theology. And maybe, you, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you aren't. But there's this idea that, you know, if we can just get ourselves together, if we can spend enough time in quiet time, maybe pray enough, you know, cut back on our secular habits, that eventually we can be like the white-haired sinless saints who sat in the pews of the churches we grew up in, right? If we can just get our stuff together, if we try hard enough, eventually those pesky sinful desires will just kind of go away, right? Go away. There's only one problem. The Bible doesn't teach this theology. In fact, the Bible quite clearly teaches a very different theology, which is that until the moment you die, you are going to wrestle with your sin, right? You are going to struggle with the sinful desires of your flesh, even though you're unified with Christ, even though you've been given a new identity. Why is this so important to talk about? Well, because when we talk about doing the work of holiness and and seeking to live holy lives, there's pretty much typically two ways that's going to play out based on our dispositions that we're going to struggle with. Are you an older brother or a younger brother? Now, you probably have some familiarity with the the prodigal son, you know, parable that Jesus tells. If you grew up in this kind of church, you've probably heard or read some of Tim Keller's stuff on it. It's all great, right? But what I want to get at here with the the idea of the prodigal son and the older brother and younger brother is that there is the younger brother, right, who comes to his father and says, I don't want you. I don't want relationship with you. Give me my inheritance now because I'd rather you be dead so I can just live my life. And then he, he goes off and he squanders in his inheritance on whatever fun sin he can get his hands on, right? And then there's the older brother in the story who lives a, a wonderful moral life, who does everything his father could want of him, but not because he loves his father, because just like the younger brother, he's hoping to get things from his father. And so you have these two differing examples of what this pursuit of sin can look like. This sinful younger brother who struggles with the more external gross sin or this righteous, self-righteous older brother who struggles with rule keeping in order to achieve some rightness before God and ultimately try to get what he wants. Both are deadly. What does that look like as we pursue holiness and we struggle with these dispositions though? For the younger brothers and sisters here today, excuse me, for the younger brothers and sisters here today, you probably feel like a little bit of an imposter, right? Like you, you don't really feel that you belong here. You may have been part of church for a while and the messages of grace and mercy and what Christ has done for you are good and they help you. But ultimately, you're not so sure you actually make it here, right? And the reason you feel this way is because you look around you and you think there are people in this room who don't struggle with sin. Not like you do, right? Why do you feel that way? Well, younger brothers, just by their disposition, they have a feel for how close their sin actually is. They know it's crouching at the door. They know it's, it's just under the surface and they don't have a whole lot of control over it, right? They know the porn's right there on their phone, the bottle's a short drive, the anger they've tried so hard to, to control is just under the skin. Anything could break it loose and then the shame will come with it, right? And so for younger brothers, as you sit here, thinking there are actually people who don't struggle with sin like you do, you can start to despair because you've bought into this lie of perfectionism. You think there are people who are there and you don't think you could ever be there. What about older brothers, right? 
Well, for older brothers, the lie of perfectionism can be even more dangerous and deadly. And in our context, it can tend to be more, tend to be more prevalent. So we'll sit on it for a minute. You know, we're, we're here in the valley this morning, and there's a good chance that you grew up in an evangelical home if you're from around here, right? Good church home, maybe went to church every day of your life, every day of your life, every Sunday of your life. If you went every day, I mean, you might be holy, I don't know. Uh, right, so you were probably raised in a profoundly Christian home, right? You might have been private Christian school, homeschooled if you're really good, right? Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you didn't grow up Christian. Maybe you're just an all-American, right? Good red-blooded American. You've got good, strong moral values, general belief in God and the Bible, and Jesus did something for me, right? You, you maybe don't see as much your need here is the issue. These are all good things, right? Homeschooling's great. Sure, you know? Private school, public school, whatever, whatever your thing is. Being a good American is great. Having good morals are good things. But there's a danger to them because the reality is that we're all broken by the power of sin. And older brothers are always at risk of thinking they've arrived, of thinking they get it, right? Sure, they need the blood of Jesus. They need faith in what he's done. Maybe just not as much as the younger brother does, right? And they don't struggle with the gross external sins. And so they can tend to think they've arrived, that they are holy, now, this is pretty destructive on the personal level, but it's catastrophic on the cultural level. Even our churches can get sucked into this myth, this, this lie of perfectionism, and we'll elevate individuals because of their preaching or intelligence only to watch them come tumbling down in the future, right? It's a lie. It's a lie that any of us can reach some sort of perfection this side of glory. And we need to put this lie to death. And maybe in doing so, Evangelical culture will produce one less Christian celebrity who's revealed to have secret hidden sin. Maybe there'll be one less podcast about the sin of an evangelical church or university. Or maybe there'll be one less Christian denomination plugged with sexual abuse. See, perfectionism is a lie. We cannot achieve this sinless desire, this state of sinless desire not saying that right, but roll with me. We cannot achieve it this side of heaven, and so there is a call that we all need to honesty and openness. You see, the reality is that even though it manifests differently as we pursue holiness, both the younger brothers and the older brothers and sisters are all afraid of the same thing. See, we know that we're made for relationship with God. We believe as Christians we're called to be holy, but we still really struggle to believe that God can actually change us. We struggle to believe that the precious blood of Jesus can go that far. Now, I know you said, did I just say the older brothers think they've made it? And that holy cross is the deceiving power of sin. You see, the older brothers are just as scared of their sin as the younger brothers. But because of their self-righteousness, their pride, their fear, their inability to be honest and open... They're going to hide it. They're going to bury it under layers and layers and layers of self-righteousness until one day they either choke to death on their own self-righteousness or the sin they tried to act like didn't exist is going to burst like a bomb and it's going to leave the wreckage of broken families and marriages in its wake. 
So don't be fooled by the older brother. They're just as scared as the younger brother. And the underlying struggle for both is that they have no hope. But listen, Holy Cross, we must have hope that the blood of Christ will make us holy. What does that look like? You know, I know we're reading through the Westminster Standards in one of our men's groups, and, and that's, it's awesome. Thanks, Rob, Bailey, wherever you're at. Um, and the, if you're not familiar with our, our denominational stuff, it's the Westminster Standards. It's just a whole bunch of doctrinal stuff that kind of compiles what we believe and why we believe, and it's based in Scripture. It's a beautiful thing. And a part of that is called our catechism. And the catechism has this awesome section on the Ten Commandments. And it, it just lays out in incredible detail what it looks like to keep the Ten Commandments, what it looks like to, to follow them and to obey God. And you're going to read it and be like, man, that really is, is profound. And then you're also going to feel a little crushed because you're like, that is really hard. And then the catechism in its wisdom goes on and says, hey, also, by the way, you can't do it. Like, this is what it looks like to follow God, to live a holy life. And hey, by the way, you will never be able to do it, not even for a day, right? And so there is this great relief because what this brings us to is that when we truly look into the holiness of God, we realize that this side of heaven, we could never achieve a holiness that is comparable to his or that would earn us righteousness before him. And this knowledge that we can't do it can, de can begin to set us free from fear as we acknowledge that our holiness could never depend on us. God has rescued you. He has set you apart as his people. And it is him who is now making you holy. Ultimately, it is his work. He is the one who through grace brought you out of bondage to sin and death. And he is the one through the work of the Holy Spirit who is continually putting to death the work of sin in your life. Paul's famous benediction from 1 Thessalonians speaks to this. It says, may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so before we begin our pursuit of holiness, we need to be assured of two things. One, that we can never do it on our own. And because of this, we need to live open, humble lives, acknowledging our sin, letting others into that struggle, right? This is what our small groups are about. The nitty gritty of holiness means you need some help because you can't do it. And because you can't do it, to keep you from going totally off the rails, you're gonna need brothers and sisters walking alongside of you, speaking the words of the Holy Spirit into your life so that you can pursue holiness. And the second thing that we need as we pursue holiness is to cultivate a greater faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. God has promised to make you holy. And though you fumble through this process, his blood is enough to keep you in your unfaithfulness. The grace you receive through faith in Christ is enough to keep you amid your struggles with sin. And only with this foundation laid can we begin the work of pursuing holiness. What does that look like in this passage? You know, Peter gives us a glimpse of what it looks like for believers to pursue holiness. Again, this call to holiness is meant to encourage. Peter is telling them, because we have sure faith that Christ will save us and keep us, we can begin the difficult process of putting our sin to death. Peter calls us to be sober-minded, not living according to our former passions, not according to the sinful nature we were born into, but according to the new identity we have been given as the people of God. 
In verse 22, he says, having purified your souls through your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of, imperishable seed, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now this word for purifying that Peter is using in verse 22 is the word for setting something apart as holy. Peter is telling these believers, you've been made holy, you've been brought into the family of God through the work of Christ, now set yourself apart as holy. Again, what does this actually look like? It means every day we're called to the difficult process of putting our sin to death. It means that when sin shows up in your life, don't be surprised or discouraged. Instead, glory in the fact that the Lord has freed you from sin. Jesus has freed you from your bondage to sin and he is sanctifying you daily. And someday you will be completely free from your sin in eternity. Our hope then is not that in seeking our holiness we'll become perfect this side of heaven. Our hope is in the fact that through seeking holiness, we're given a foretaste of our eternal hope. And this leads us to our last point. Holiness gives us hope in the future. It is a future hope. Throughout this passage, Peter has been building the contrast between the temporary and the eternal. And this is the true source of hope in this passage. Just as the Israelites, as the people of God, were being set apart to be brought into the promised land, so are we being set apart for our eternal hope. In verses 13 and 22 through 25, Peter encourages these believers that their call to holiness is ultimately a call to eternal hope. As the people of God purchased with the blood of Christ, they've been given the very thing they need, eternal hope of restored relationship with the triune God. Even now, Christ has enabled us as believers to start to live more and more free of the power of sin. And this is going to be recognized and completed at the revelation of Jesus Christ that Peter speaks of. Why is he doing this, right? Who's Peter writing to? Remember that. He's contrasting this eternal hope with the temporary nature of the suffering that the church is enduring and the temporary nature of the world around them that is passing away. You see, as believers, we've already been set apart from the world by God. And we continue setting ourselves apart from sin through our obedience to the truth. So why do we persist despite persecution and struggles and temptations and trials and failures and weakness? Because we have been born again of an imperishable seed. Even in the midst of our suffering in this world, we are reminded that this is not our calling. That we have an eternal calling of holy and restored relationship with God. I wanna know if you grasp how much hope there is in this. These believers were persisting despite losing everything. Their hope in a future state was enough to help them persist. You know, I think every church has a danger of losing sight how great our ultimate reconciliation to God is. How much greater it is than our present state, right? We're, we're a middle-class church. And that's not a bad thing, right? But as believers, we are called not to put our hope in the temporary gold and things that we have in this world. We've been bought something better with the blood of Christ. Our ultimate hope is always eternal. Our families, careers, homes, and hobbies are all temporary gifts that will pass away. 
And our holiness is far greater than that. It won't fade. The blood of Christ doesn't lose value to inflation. I still think this is hard for us to get a hold of though, right? Like we're listening and we're probably thinking, this is good, great. Probably not gonna suffer like the people Peter's talking to, right? Probably not gonna get fed to a lion. If you do, cool. Not cool, but. But there's a reality here. Like, let's talk for a second. Suffering is unavoidable. Just hear me out. I'm not trying to be too gloomy. It is not going to go well for everybody in this room. Right? You're hoping it's the guy next to you, not you. But life is not going to go well for all of us, okay? Some of you, like every investment in your portfolio is going to play out perfectly. You're going to retire at 55, spend 30-some years, you know, die in your 80s surrounded by grandchildren, generations of faithful believers, right? It's going to be beautiful. Some of you aren't going to make it to retirement. Woo, yeah, right? Some of you are going to bury loved ones. Some of you are going to suffer immensely. And in the midst of that, you need something to hold on to. What has God promised us? Peter's getting at something here. If you look at the end of the passage with me, Peter is getting at something here important. Verse 24, all flesh is like, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, this word is the good news that was preached to you. What's Peter after here? I mean, Peter is talking to people who are actually dying. This is not just a story. He's not just blowing smoke, okay? What is Peter telling you? The flesh, all the glory of this life is gonna fall like the flower when the frost hits for the first time tonight, right? And so what Peter is after here is you have one ultimate promise, one ultimate hope in the midst of all of that. All of the totality of the counsel of scripture is pointing you to this hope. The word that will endure, which is the gospel. You have been promised nothing but that. Not blessing, not health, not even your daily bread. You have been promised ultimate redemption because Jesus has rescued you. Listen to me, we look to the good hand of the Father for everything and we ask him for our needs and more often than not, in his goodness, he gives that to us. But when everything else is stripped away, you're going to need more than platitudes and cliches to carry you. And your holiness now is that. Your holiness is a precious gift from the hand of the Father to carry you through the midst of all of this life. Everything else fades. Your holiness now is because God loves you, because he is not willing to leave you in your sin. But as a foretaste of the eternal promise, which cannot be taken away, he's making you holy now because he loves you to give you hope. 
This is the promise you cling to. And this plays out not just in our struggles with life, but with sin. C.S. Lewis, in some of his writings on the idea of hell, develops this idea that hell in some ways is locked from the inside. That even now, we're becoming either more hellish creatures and will continue to do so for eternity, or if Christ is at work in us, we're already becoming heavenly beings and that will continue for eternity as we live with God. And there's some truth to this, right? Even now, even as you struggle with your sin, God is making you holy. Even even as you are drugged down by the weight of your sin, you do not have to be broken and burdened and, and distraught by it. Because you can look at the holiness God is working in you, however slow and painful, you can look at the holiness God is working in you and know that this is a process he is going to continue for eternity, making you more like him. I really want you to grasp the hope in this. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for the day you'll be made perfectly holy? where you won't struggle with your sin anymore, where you can love people like you want to love them, where you won't deal with the broken relationships that, that are so painful. Someday, for the children of God, the covenant people purchased with Christ's blood, all things will be reconciled. Holiness, then, is not a burden. It is a beautiful gift. Someday, you will be ever free of sin, and your holiness now is a foretaste of that reality. Cling to it. Remind yourself of it daily. Remind yourself that all things are passing away. Remind yourself that your hope is not here. Your security is in the precious blood of Christ, which has ransomed you from sin and death. Christ has saved you through grace and given you a new identity. Christ is working grace in you now, making you holy. And someday that grace will be fully reconciled, recognized when we're reunited with Christ in heaven. It's because of this, I think with confidence, you should be able to say the words of the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. We've said this a lot in our church. It's a beautiful, beautiful question and answer from this catechism. And in light of what we've said this morning, I I hope that you hear these words in a new way. So let me read them to you. Question, believer, what is your only hope in life and death? That I am not, answer, that I am not my own, but I belong both body and soul both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He so preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Holy Cross, we belong to the Lord and he has called us to be holy. Let holiness become a precious gift to you. Look to the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus as you pursue it. Will you pray with me? God of grace, thank you. Thank you that you don't leave us in our brokenness, but that you come to us and make us yours through the blood of the Son. That you have made a promise 
greater than any promise to us. You swore it by yourself because there was nothing greater to swear by. And you sealed that promise with the blood of Jesus. The promise that you have made us holy, you're making us holy, and someday we will be perfectly made holy as we dwell for eternity with you. Give us greater faith in that promise. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.